So in a sense, the pain is an invitation to learn your body. And so it's not that you have, let's say, a liability. It's that you're going to be, it's an invitation and maybe it's a calling, whatever you want to say, that tells you, you will learn how you use your body. This podcast does not constitute medical advice. All changes surrounding medications, diet and exercise should be made in consultation with a professional who can assess your unique health circumstances. Welcome to the Rheumatoid Solutions Podcast with Clint Patterson, helping you to live an easier, healthier, and happier life. So on Instagram, I started following a person called Graham Tuttle, and his Instagram handle is the Barefoot Sprinter. And the reason I started following Graham is because he started talking about barefoot walking to improve your feet and also uh, the health of your lower limbs in general. And then he started talking about hanging from bars for your shoulders. And I'm like, hang on, this is exactly the sort of things that we've been talking about on our podcast for the last few years that have not just helped me, but other members of our community to reduce pain in those areas and improve mobility and so on. And so I reached out to Graham and he agreed to do this podcast today with us, which is exciting. Uh, he's a strength and performance coach. He's now based in California. He has a Bachelor of Arts degree. He studied kinesiology and exercise science and achieved the Dean's List for academic uh, performance. He has a huge following online. I am now part of his customer base, having bought one of his programs and I've been following along many of the lessons that he has provided as part of that course, which is all around the shoulders. And so that's what I'm up to. And the engagement that I've had so far with Graham has been brilliant. And so with that, I'd like to welcome Graham to this episode. I appreciate you. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be welcomed and uh, to be seen. Well, thanks for joining us, my friend. Now, um, today we, we, we bantered about, because you have got so much content, we bantered around what's the best way to get a sort of a bite-sized chunk here for a really valuable episode. And you made a really good point that everyone's got different problems in different areas and that and that ultimately what we all have in common is a human body, which has some fundamental human systems that we all need to get right. And mm-hmm. so I'm going to hand over to you and I'd like to hear about what are some of the crucial aspects of a human body that we must get right, whether or not we've got rheumatoid or whether or not we're a barefoot sprinter like yourself, who's in great shape. So one of the things I think is, is, is valuable to start off from the beginning is, you know, we get this, this segmented idea of populations where we say, all right, there's athletes who are like the top of the food chain. And then we get our, you know, our geriatric injured rehabilitative people or patients who get, you know, stuck in the, the swim pool and they, you know, they're doing aerobics, swim aerobics and stuff like that. So in some capacity, I think we have this um, bifurcated view of what the body is in a sense. And so we say, oh, people that are super healthy and super young, super fit, they're athletes and people that maybe have certain definitive diagnosis, they have a certain, maybe they didn't give the genetic roll of the dice. They, they're just, they no longer have this aspect, this aspiration to you know, have capacity of their body. So you know, personally, starting off, you know, I, I had very poor eyesight. So what, what happens when I wear glasses is there's two things. We have very far sighted, so very thick glasses. Uh, you you develop the you learn everything you see is magnified. So like everything you're looking at is bigger than it actually is, and you don't get depth perception. So uh, sorry, 
peripheral vision, meaning out to the side. So you can imagine if you put your blinders up, your hands up to the side of your eye, basically cuts off your ability to see things and move. And so because of that, I didn't really develop much of this coordination, like let's say an athletic field. So I was always kind of, you know, blocky and chunky in my movement and, you know, which is hard because the thing I always wanted to be was like a professional athlete, be able to play, be able to move. And I did not take well to sitting in school. I did not take well to um, just the the sedentary lifestyle of like sitting there, listen, regurgitate. So, you know, in this process, I, I grew up wanting so badly to be this idea of like some level of an athlete. And so, that kind of was the undergirding of all the the pursuits I took, which is like a, sort of lifting weights and moving. And because, you know, no one really teaches you this stuff when you're in third grade, fourth grade PE, it's, you kind of left to figure it out. So I, you know, I, I did a lot of bodybuilding stuff like that, but ultimately what I really wanted to do was feel coordinated. I wanted to feel in my body. I wanted to feel balanced. I wanted to feel healthy. I want to feel natural and powerful. I just like the things that you look at an athlete and, you know, whether or not I could hit a baseball out of the park or, I don't know, dunk a basketball. It was kind of second to the point of like what I really just wanted to feel was like, like I felt like I knew how to use my body. It's kind of like when you get in a new car for the first time, where let's just say you're in a big truck and it's like you don't really know what to do. It's get boxes, you don't know where the edges are. But once you get in a car and you know when it fits, like there's this familiarity. And you know, in some capacity, that was always a driving thing. Is I would train and do a lot of the movements, and I would end up in these areas like uh, ankle problems, foot problems, knee problems, back problems, shoulder dislocations. It's just, my body wasn't cooperating with the stimulus I was putting on it and led to this thing where like the physical training, I was doing the right stuff by being exercise, being, uh, getting outside, moving, being fit. And yet I was constantly getting this feedback pain from my body. It was just, you know, like anything from stiff back to disc problems, the knee, patellar ankle sprains, the turf toe. And, you know, I, I think it was a common experience for most people because in some aspect, I guess maybe I kept pushing you a little bit further because I had this underlying drive and desire that's like, I want to be athletic. I want to be the best. I want to go and, and move and train and, and push myself. Whereas most people get through this first round of pain and, and painful feedback, maybe a first serious injury, and they kind of like back off. They, they say, well, that was it. I'm not really going to go and try to run anymore. Or maybe my plantar fasciitis gets so bad. Or maybe it's not, you know, maybe not running is, is maybe running is not going to be in the cards for me. And it, you see, this is very much a psychological process. And so in some capacity, even though saying the barefoot sprinter sounds like potentially intimidating, it's, I don't run barefoot. I'm not a masochist. I don't do this stuff. But I, to me, the idea of sprinting is like the ultimate expression of like a physical, like if you can sprint as a human, a lot of stuff is going well. If you can hang, if you can swing, if you can throw, like a lot of stuff is going well. And so what I want to do is to say that your body is capable and the ability to be able to do things barefoot and coming from a place where my, my feet, the plantar fasciitis, Achilles tendonitis, turf toe, metatarsalagia, neuromas, like all the problems people have, I started to like have to unpack that. And so it led me on this process of, okay, let me look at the body and figure out what's going on because I was at 22, 23, 25, 26. I, I just, I struggled to just accept that you either look really good and you just accept being in pain or you're just naturally athletic and gifted, or you're just another, it's like, it's like, I don't want to just go to the gym and just do the vanity stuff and sacrifice feeling good in my body or the joints, which is what I had done. And I obviously was aware that the genetics of being super athletic and coordinated and being professional weren't in the cards for me, but I was like, that does, I'm not going to, that, that the problem is if you sit with those are the only two options, you damn the rest of the population. Like, what happens to the 98% of people who are just like me, who just, it wasn't there. And so what I ultimately got to and started to really test as a hypothesis is that, you know, assuming that the, the base level of nutrition and lifestyle choices of that, I mean, you're somewhat outside, you're not constantly doing something you hate and you're eating real food. 
those are obviously like the foundation of, of a healthy body. When it comes to movement, if you give your body the right stimulus, which we could talk about that, what that looks like, just a general, a very simple overview and understanding what the body is and how it could move. A lot of these, your body is really smart. It starts to do all the stuff together. So in a sense, even if you're 60 years old, there's some of the research you're looking at plyometrics, uh, like doing jump roping and hopping, your body will still remodel. And the very smart tissue called fascia, this connective tissue that wraps around your whole body, it will form together. So in a sense, it's like, you don't have to sacrifice between looking good, being capable. And by capable, I mean athletic, meaning having access of your body. And that's true at any age. And then also being healthy. Like those, those aren't like those, they, the same training, the same approach will accomplish all three of those. So that's kind of where I've left me now. And I try to explain that as best I could via content and stuff to make it palatable for people. Yeah. No, that, that that's so true, isn't it? We do definitely compartmentalize ourselves compartmentalize ourselves to having a problem and therefore having you know limited scope with the future with our exercise mm-hmm. uh, versus as you said those who who uh, feel healthy and well and feel entitled therefore to do everything and ideally be pain free however as you said uh the vanity approach at the gym uh is going to lead to joint pains um you know i i I, you know, you, everyone I speak to at the gym who's my age, often younger, are, uh, are dealing with something. You see, between sets, yeah. they're moving their shoulders, something's not right, they're wincing. So, yes, so good. And so, they go right back to it, ironically, that, right? Right back, you know, let's. It's let's, funny, yeah. we, tr- we train with machines and then we move like a machine and then we go, oh, my shoulder hurts. Well, let me do another set. Okay. It's like, you know, uh, no, I hear, I hear, which is which is why I'm talking to you, and which is why I haven't had anyone on the show ever who just lifts weights, right? So, mm-hmm. um, so you said a nice phrase earlier, and I, I forgot the exact phrase, but as along the lines of the 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 sort of the 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 correct stimulus for every human mm-hmm. body in terms of exercise. Let's explore that. So this this is kind of let's just say I, I've had the pleasure and blessing in the last really year year and a half to travel up and down let's just say the the like the, the country and into canada so just a, a a pretty decent tour of a lot of the coaches and some of the best thinkers and and learn from a lot of people because ultimately i think that there's two conversations there's the performance and then there's the there's the pain conversation and then there's the performance conversation meaning it's easy to talk about you know the top basketball players the top football cricket rugby you're talking like all these elite athletes and it's fun to talk about how we're going to get Usain Bolt like 0.1 second faster on the track and running a, a minute faster in a marathon that's the performance side there's a lot of people get really excited about that those are typically the things that people become physical therapists every single person I've ever talked to that wants to be a physical therapist oh what do you want to do well, I want to work with athletes well guess what that's you know the quote-unquote athlete you're thinking of is not going to be the quintessential aspect of your client so you know that that's that's it. But then the other side is the pain thing. And that's where you get the ads seen on TV ads, uh, at least commonly in America, that's kind of the setup. But you see the, you know, there's this, all right, how can we get you a pill, a product or a procedure to try and assuage your pain in a sense? And so there's a whole lot of psychology goes into like a misunderstanding of what pain is. And so it gets very simply labeled pain bad. And so pain bad, let's numb it. And so there's a pill, which is kind of get you something to like, it, and by pill, it's like anything that is a, you do the, you day take this, you ingest, do something that allows you to numb out the sensation, a procedure, it could be a shot, an injection, a surgery, something like that. And then a product, orthotics, um, braces, knee sleeves. I mean, it, they abound. And I'm sure in your world, the hardest part is that 
there is no money to be made in dead people and healthy people. And so when you get someone that is, and having parents, my mom's early onset Alzheimer's, my dad's a Parkinson's, uh, is a more advanced case. It's just a deep brain stimulation. You, the insurance, between the insurance companies, between the doctors and the specialists and the specialist specialists and the radio technicians and the amount of x-rays and the amount of, uh, then you go to your nutritionist and you go to your physical therapist and you go to your surgeon's physical therapist. And it's like, Everyone, if, even though individually they're doing what is a good, like, with the best of intentions, collectively they form this overwhelming weight of just, I feel now like my life has just gotten so, we were talking about health insurance. Okay. And I have this basic health insurance. It was like, I feel like my life has gotten so expensive to maintain. And the pressure of that, like I have to go and work and slave away just to be able to afford to manage, not improve, to manage. And that's the modern insurance is like, this, and so the, the point is, if it's not in the performance side, it's in this pain conversation. And the hardest part is that when you get beat down and, and so say, when you don't get this clear interaction. So one of the things that I, I find with people like you, for example, that have taken ownership of their ability, and it starts with yourself. So it's always an individual process. I take ownership of my ability to, you know, all right, I'm going to take control back of my life, which I think the most damning thing of any uh, let's say a diagnosis is you now feel like I've lost control. I have this thing. Like, for example, it's already, we have immutable characteristics. I'm white, I'm man. It's like, I'm, whatever your height is like, okay, those are things. But now it's like, I label on top. Now you've got this thing. And because of this thing, you have to this pill. And this pill has this side effect. This pill, the side effect is going to eventually wear you down. You need this surgery. And it's like, you feel like you're piled on top of yourself. And you're never going to choose who you are or how you express yourself. And so for those, it's step like, I'm not going to just be a victim here. They take a step back and say, okay, maybe I need to do some research. And I become empowered with the knowledge. And so those people that then, step back and they, they're able to express themselves. And so what, what ends up happening is you remove the layer between I'm a doctor. It's not a doctor patient. It's the doctor who has to refer to the insurance company who talks to the uh, medical lab company who orders the test. And then they go to the specialist, the phlebotomist who orders it. And then they have someone who reviews it. He gets a technician. It's like there's 17 points of information between doctor and patient. And so people who go and say, hey, I'm a person, you're a person. Let's talk together, come together. There's a lot more passion. And I think that's like the natural electricity between people. And so when you, and I'm sure most of the people in your program, the refreshing aspect is they feel like they're finally talking to a person, someone that understands them, that sees them, and, they, and honors them as not just another diagnosis or a broken specimen in the insurance chain. Um, and obviously different from country to country, but in general, these large corporations' incentives carry this way. So the, all that to be said is you find that people are very passionate when they're able to connect to the person. And I think that's happens a little bit more on the athletic side. But what I want to do is to, like, to blend these together and communicate in a way that when you know it's 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 you do this so that you can do that. It's the so that you can. And this is the biggest problem. So you'll go in and to say physical therapists will say, well, your shoulder is feeling a little iffy. Okay, let's do some band movements, let's get some rotation, maybe some needling and cupping, and we'll do some hanging. And the so that you can is just like, well, maybe then your shoulder won't hurt. You know, and they'll also tell you. Yes, but you should probably be careful when you're lifting overhead. And they probably told you you shouldn't hang anymore if your shoulders are bothering you. They definitely told you that. They said you probably shouldn't play squash or cricket. You probably shouldn't swing anything. It's like, okay, so what am I allowed to do? Now it's like you're a four-year-old being told what you can and can't do by your – and it's like, of course, this rehab work because you just told me I couldn't do anything. Same thing with knee pain or ankle pain. We probably shouldn't ski anymore. Well, what if I love the ski? Do you think about that? Well, no, because you're not an athlete. It's like you're not in the performance side, so we just have to manage it. And so it's managing. It's just this like – Twiddling your thumbs, waiting to die. And what I think the only difference I have in terms of my communication is I don't go and say, hey, your feet should move. It's your feet should move 
so that you can run, jump, wipe, walk, hike, stand, balance. And it's like connecting people to this dream that they once had. And, and this is the thing, when you look at anything that happens to kids, whether there's abductions or like shooting, anything, anything that happens to kids, the reason it's so terribly devastating is because of the loss of potential. And yet slowly over decades, we get used to this like chopping away, chipping away a little potential. Well, you know, you're 30, so you're back to hurt. Well, you're 40, so of course, you're, you know, you're going to be stiff. Well, you're 50, so your knees are going to go, well, 60. Well, your hips are, you know, maybe we should look at hip replacement. And it's like, it becomes the, the milieu, the, 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 the environment we live in. And unfortunately, that just chips away at your ability to see yourself as any potential. And then it's like, well, you know, we should, we should go to physical therapy, your shoulder. It's like, maybe it just won't hurt. And the only thing people can aspire to is just to not hurt. And there's no difference between not hurting and being numb. And so when the most, the best you can aspire to is being numb, then you don't have any dream. And your body is, is partly in your brain, but it's, it's this very intellectual system that is wired in your neurons, your shared uh, parasympathetic and sympathetic feedback system, your fascia. They can tell, like you talk to a plant, you think about it. If you talk to a plant the way doctors talk to people, plant would die. Like the plant will literally wither based off the energy you put into it. And then people go into a doctor, which is no sunlight, no natural air. It's just very sanitized. And now you don't even see people's faces. And it's like, they get treated just like, well, you're a problem. Well, how's the medication? Well, maybe we need to up the dose, take this. And it's like, they literally, after getting beat down and beat down, because they don't get this, this electric passion that you have, which I see in your eyes. I'm like, I see this person as a person and I can actually help them. Like they get, they, they lose it because they go, oh, I have to five minutes for this person, five minutes for this person. I'm always running late. And I have to see a hundred people in an hour or in a day. And then all of a sudden, yeah, sorry, I don't have any energy to show up and treat you like a real person. And then that person, you know what's crazy? And this is the last thing I'll say, because this is actually, I didn't realize this is much more personal than I was. I've, I've spent a lot of time sitting in with my dad uh, and his Parkinson's. So Parkinson's basically is a, a neurological disorder, for those who don't know, where your brain stops functioning with dopamine. There's not a clear on, onset of like why it happens. I mean, there's a lot of like potential things that go, but so suffice it to say, I think almost all these neuro, neurogenerative disorders, uh, Alzheimer's, dementia, Parkinson's, you name it, have something to do with like, you know, we're sick and we don't, we no longer get the stimulus we need, whether it's sunlight, fresh air, we're doing something. And so the brain isn't healthy. So we have this, this stress that builds up over time. And so we see this rising like epidemic of it. But, you know, I would sit in and my dad, and so we, I'd go and sit with his doctor. His doctor's great, like a really smart guy, definitely entrepreneurial mind who wants to get out there. But, you know, I, I'm being an outside. I just come in because I'm, I'm very blessed and very grateful to be a healthy, you know, 29, healthy 30 year old almost. And it's like, so I don't have, I don't have this jaded thing of like, this isn't my 10th year sitting in going to the doctor and being beat up. And most people like they just, you get your doctor and your specialist and all, you, you know them. And it's like, oh, I have to do it again. It's not new. So like I come in with a little bit of fresh perspective and I'm listening. And then my dad's the doctor's asked questions to how you feel about this. How's your energy? How's your sleep? And my dad's just start talking. I'm like, this is like the closest thing to a social interaction that my dad gets in terms of somebody that is not related to him that will ask him questions and listen. And it's so amazing to think that for most people, their primary care of the doctor, my dad pays extra to have a concierge for a doctor will sit with him for more than 10 minutes, like a 30 minute session. And you realize that like most doctors, the weight of that to be an expert, but like People are so isolated. They're so alone that the closest thing they have to a friend is their doctor. And the only reason to go in their doctor is their pain. And so like, there's no way to dream of bigger because it's like, it's, 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 it's really tough. And the doctor, unfortunately, doesn't know everything. So they ask, oh, how's your eating been? Oh, well, you know, I'm doing pretty good. And I had this. It's like, they don't know. Like they can't, they can't know. They can't replace you as a real friend. And it's tough because there's so many things. And ultimately what I get to is, 
when you look at any type of diagnosis and, and medical situation, it is far more than just the pain. It's far more than just the physical sensation. It's a psychological, it's an identity. It's your entire life shifts and changes in a way that you just thought you're going in for a bum ankle. And all of a sudden you walk out with this thing where now I have a whole list of foods I can't eat. I have things I have to stay away from. I have new medications to be on. I have new specialists I have to talk to. And by the way, my insurance premium hopefully doesn't go up if you're not living in Australia, wherever it is. It's like, it, it just, I don't think people honor that. And then under the weight of that, they don't have someone to talk to. And then they start to see themselves as not just a human. They go, I'm a human with this, or, you know, oh, what do you do? Oh, you know, I'm Graham, I've got this. It's like, there's, and because of that, you stop treating yourself as though you could be an athlete. And athlete is a very scalable thing. So the loop is all together. You get stuck in the pain camp, which is basically just, we're going to shove you in this box and get you to pay this stuff until you die. Because it's like, there's no chance you can get better and heal. It's like, and if we started to understand the athlete is simply referring to your capacity to have autonomy and competency in your body. If that means you're 65 and you now go from, I, I was sitting on the couch to walking, that means you've now taken a step. It's a spectrum. You've stepped, Higgins said, you've become more athletic because you went from sedentary to walking. If I go from walking to being able to jump rope for five minutes, that's a step up. That does not mean you are dunking basketballs and it doesn't have to just because that person is, you know, could do it. That's great. But it's a spectrum. And if you could get people to start to think about that, that any step they take towards more activity, more incorporation of their body, they then become their, a more athletic individual, which means they are being healthy. It's the same exact thing. It's the same process. Like it's how do you bring hope back to people? And so that's the biggest thing I see, especially when you get to a population of people per se that have a collective, their, their identity is based off a collective diagnosis, so to speak. So a lot there, but mm. Yeah, I love it. I can see the passion coming through. Obviously, you've so heavily affected personally as well by the diagnosis of your dad and your mom, and and both with those brain conditions and uh, mm. and and tying that all into what you do professionally and the way that you help people and the way that you want to convey to us. It, I love the passion. It's absolutely fantastic. And I didn't answer the question either, but I, I have an that, answer for that, that now. <laughs> Uh, well, 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 well. Let's jump to that in a second. Uh, just, a, just a little note. I hosted a conference uh, just recently where a couple of neuroscientists who are experts in treating Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. Uh, they're called the Brain Docs on Instagram. You might want to check okay. them out. Uh, I'll send you the link, Esther. But they're Dean and Aisha Sherzai, S H E R Z A I. They're incredible people. So, Fantastic. um, something to look into. Uh, did you want to? Uh, did you want to go with a uh, systems or stimulus approach now for the human let me, body. Let me answer the question. Yes. Uh, let's yeah. go with that. I've, I've got more questions now. In fact, the, I, we're, I've actually increased the number of questions as opposed to decreased um, because I then want to talk about how we instill an athletic mindset into mm-hmm. people who are in that medical state. So, yes. Yep. Let's do that too. So the most important part, and so this is really what the conclusion I've come to in the last, you know, we're doing a lot of stuff wrong in a sense. And so by wrong, I mean, in a way that didn't honor and listen to the feedback my body was getting. So that's all pain is, is feedback. And so when you understand and listen to it, it gets you a, it, it grounds you in your body. Pain is the first teacher that really is, uh, like sorts you to say, oh, this is, this is hot. This is cold. It, it is, it is a form of feedback. And the thing that differentiates pain from all other feedback is it contracts your attention. If I touch something that's hot and it causes pain, it just means now my attention is there. I could have been having a great conversation, but I step on a rock and I got to pay attention. So anything that contracts your attention is simply a pain. 
That is a very broad definition, but pain is literally, it's unquantifiable, it's immeasurable, it's individual, yet it's absolutely ubiquitous. Every single person knows what pain is, and yet we don't have a way to, we don't, we don't have a definition for it. And so that's what I thought a lot about is like, a pain is something, and it could be psychological, mental, emotional, but generally in the physical realm, it's just something that grabs your attention. So by training and doing a lot of stuff that you're grinding through pain, so to speak, I'm doing a lot of bench press, for example, my shoulders are hurting, but I'm not honoring the fact that my body's giving me feedback. And so my, it's pointing at, hey, something's there. And it's, it's a little thing. If I pay attention to the little frictions, let's just say at the beginning, oh, that didn't feel very smooth. And like, that didn't feel very natural. I can then make adjustments and say, oh, maybe, maybe there's something I'm not learning here. And so all that to be said is, as I started to understand that if you train like a, if you train with machines or move like a machine, and I'm not talking about those fancy, you know, modern day iRobotics, I'm talking like very blocky, you know, like um, demolition crew things. But when you start to understand this is like, there's a system that moves the body. So fundamentally, the modern medical establishment has been formed around the idea of cadaver science, meaning because it's, you know, amazingly, it's unethical to cut somebody open that's still alive and look at their body. So we're kind of resigned to, right, what happens when someone dies. And so once someone dies, there's all kinds of dehydration aspects that happen. There's rigor mortis. There's all, even if you get someone immediately, they're no longer pumping blood through the body. And so you can imagine this in a sense, like a car engine that runs out of oil seizes up. So the second there's no oil, there's, there's no lubrication, there's no life force flowing through it. There is no ability for this thing to operate as it would have. And so in the same way, when we look at cadaver science, we start to think, we, we, we we're able to create conjecture and, and uh, like think and pontificate around the body. It's like, oh, this looks like this muscle, and that probably, this pulls on this, and this does here. And so we look at animal studies, we look at cadavers, and so we form this thing. And so in general, once you take away the living forces, living circulation, what you are left with is muscles, ligaments, tendons, organs, bones, skin. In that sense, so it's very like you get this structural thing. So if you Google anatomy of a human body, and these are the pictures you're used to seeing, you see a skeleton, and then you see a skeleton with muscles, these big, you know, red muscles that are in doing that, and then you see nerves going around, you see blood vessels, and you see some organs, and it all is pretty and clean. But if you look at a cadaver, they look nothing like that. If you look inside somebody, it is all this very throbbing, vibrant life tissue that flows together. And the thing that is lost in this translation, and it, because it's the, the question to always ask when you hear medical studies, and this is really important because if you can educate people on the framework for how to think about these things, you then give them an insight into what it is that they're learning about. So, for example, if you're looking in the RA community, the biggest thing that you're probably looking at, what's the newest study say? It's like, what is the bias that informs the way the research was thinking about it? For example, I think there was, uh, I forget, it was, I think it was Eric Weinstein or, or, or Brett Weinstein was... He found out that the research that was done on mice to inform the longevity of like all these cancers, you know, they take lab mice, right? They'd like, all right, we're looking at the telomere length and what happens when you give the mice these certain drugs. Well, he found out that all the mice come from the same exact place and they all have the same genetic modification, have longer telomeres because they're made for labs. And so what is the bias? Is this a real comparison? Meaning this in vitro mouse versus a lab mass that's been specifically modified, if every single thing is coming there, what is the underlying assumption that we're no longer even thinking about? So you step back, 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 and you realize if it's really hard to study, like let's just say the first 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 years of scientific physiological study has been done on cadavers. Well, what do we not see? For example, the first 20, 30 years of study was done before bacteria was there. So if you don't consider bacteria, you may just think people are dying because they got possessed by a spirit. It's like, no, no, they got sepsis. And that's why they died. You know, it's like, 
all these things, we look back and say, what was the underlying thing? So if we can go one level deeper. So what happens is, and we're all aware of fascia. So if you think of the plantar fascia, which is this tissue, everyone knows, especially if you have plantar fasciitis, this tissue, this layer or sheath of tissue on the bottom of your foot, and it's, it basically is a, a tendon. But what fascia is, another example, it's like a sausage casing, or if you look at a chicken breast where there's like that kind of film that wraps around the chicken breast, fascia is this connective tissue. So it's fibrin, it's elastin, there's a little bit of uh, like there's a collagen protein that wraps around in between those muscle fibers, which are like the individual like uh, cubicles, so to speak, that form up the actual like base of the spindles, which are cells that run, let's just say perpendicularly parallel to one another. And, they, and a lot of them form like a bundle of sticks, so to speak. So there's fascia that wraps around that as the encasement. There's fascia that wraps around that muscle as a whole. Then there's fascia that wraps around the entire system that goes from the tendon, which is the uh, the tissue that connects the muscle to the bone, and wraps around the bones, around the organs, and creates the structure. So when you look at this, instead of thinking of the body as this compressive Roman Colosseums-like structure where there's a layer of rock that's sitting on top of a column, that's sitting on top of a foundation. It's very compressive. Everything is stacked on top of everything else. And you go to a chiropractor, you go to people that they talk about alignment. They talk about things being just so. This is the idea of posture, right? We set up with good posture. It's like, well, what does that mean? Now I stack my body up correctly. It's like, kind of, but if everyone's walking around in the Victorian era, this is what you see in previous understandings, the Victorian era posture, which is probably familiar. It's like, you know, chest back, shoulders upright, we, we sit prim and proper. It's like to sit in a deep squat, like, you know, you look at like a, a ancestral indigenous tribe, they're sitting in a deep squat, hunching over, eating things in their hands. It's very brutish and savage. And to be very prim and proper, to sit upright, to pull your shoulders back and use utensils, it's like you see the opposite of that. So is one better than the other? No, they're both shapes you can make. But you start to see this idea of like, we think of the body because we're used to looking and say, well, the bones, the knee bone sits on the thigh bone. And you kind of like this the way you're taught as kids and say, oh, muscles move, muscles and bones form the structure. But the thing is that bones are not supposed to touch one another because everything is suspended in this matrix. So another example of fascia is like, it's called a tensegrity system, meaning that everything is connected to everything else. Meaning when one part contracts, another part contracts. You can think about the fibers in your t-shirt. If I grab the bottom of my t-shirt and make a fist, it pulls, and I can feel tension every other part because all of the fibers are connected. Same thing as spider web. If I pull on one side, the rest of the spider web goes. And so when one part gets contracted, everything else, but when one part expands, everything else expands because the system is both the structure and the form. And now this is very, very hard to understand if all you're looking at is a dead person on a table. And if you're looking at someone that by the time they're moving, because this fascia is not just a set of tissues in the same way that like you look at skin, for example. Obviously, we understand like if you have a, a sun-dried tomato versus a tomato, the only difference is hydration. It's just sucked out. So there's this kind of shrinking that happens. So that's one aspect. But in real life, fascia is constantly being layered down by something called fibroblasts, which basically are these tissues that are building in the sense of laying it down. And you can think of it like snow falling over the ground. If you've ever been out, like you watch snow, I don't know if it snows, I don't show you much, but you see the snow is constantly laying. So you go out, you shovel the driveway, you clear it out. But guess what? If you don't continue to shovel it down, the snow gathers. And so that's where you can think, if I sit down for long and I wake up, I'm like, oh, my hamstring feel really stiff. Or I'm sleeping, my hands feel like my toe, I will get out of bed is the quintessential sign is, I was fine. I didn't do anything. I went to sleep and I wake up and my feet feel like they're on fire. They're pins and needles. And like, I feel like I step and I go, oh, let me stretch out my toes. What's happening is that in the period of sedentary existence, the fibroblasts are now layering down stuff. And so if you haven't shoveled the snowball, and movement is how we do that. So meaning if I have a well-trodden path, even if it's snowing, it's going to constitute just by nature of the fact that it's being used. 
So you look at humans where movement comes before consciousness. The ability to move came before the ability to be consciously aware of it. So meaning if I'm a single cell bacteria, I don't need to be conscious of stuff. I need to know that light is good, dark is bad, acid is hot, this is good. So I'm moving in response to my environment. So movement happens. So movement is the thing that fuels every other aspect of our existence. And so if I have movement, then this whole system starts to say in tune and in flux. The problem is when I have a whole anything, whether it's a diagnosis, whether it's a, uh, a, a misunderstanding for training, whether it's a allocation that athleticism is only for some people, so you shouldn't really go do this stuff because it's dangerous and bad. Anytime I advocate movement, I decide that, oh, I shouldn't go jump or bounce because it's too much for my feet. I got plantar fasciitis or I need to wear an orthotic or a stiff shoe or a brace or I have to you know, wear crutches. Anything that advocates movement means that this layering, these fibroblast, cell, fibroblast cells that are layering, the snow is falling, snow is falling, that creates this buildup. And then you see what happens when they get built up. You push the snow over to the side and you get these big ice blocks. Now, in some places, that's totally fine because that forms the general structure of the body. So your IT band, your iliotibial band, that, that long thing that runs from your hip down to the bottom of your knee on each side, that is all fascia. Every connective tissue. So the difference, it's like, it's all tissue at the same time. And the way to think about this is the highway system. So if you have a long highway that runs up, let's just say the east coast of Australia, at some point, it's going to be two lanes. At some point, it's going to be five lanes. At some point, it's going to go back to three. It's the same road. It's the same length that if you, for example, had a car that was driving up that and there's a, a pileup or an accident somewhere else, it feeds back and, and impacts everything else. But it's got different widths and different capacity. So at some point, the fascial chain will expand to accommodate for tissue within the fascia muscle to be circulated. So meaning, oh, this is important because I need to get blood flow to this to allow it to regenerate because I'm holding on to something for leverage. And so this is where you look and say, this all the same tissue, but there's different proportions to it. So when I look at something like an IT band, the iliotibial band, which is part of a longer highway that goes from my feet all the way up to my, the side of my neck and to my ears, that long thing, I don't want much movement. Unless my femur is breaking in half, that, fat, that iliotibial band should not be moving very much. So in some cases, this is good. And so you don't want to sit there and roll and roll and roll on some and smash and cause pain in some areas. But what you look at and you could study, and so this has become all the way back to the beginning, the value of looking at athletes and not just saying, oh, they're doing a performance thing, dunking and jumping and running and all this stuff is just for them, is because they form the highest expression in movement. Now, it's a scalar, meaning if you're dunking, I might just be jumping in place, holding on to something, meaning like I'm supporting myself and bouncing, or I might not even believe in the ground. I'm just bouncing up with my toes on the ground and doing like basically jump ropes without leaving the ground. That's the same movement, but in the same way that uh, the military or NASA creates the, the highest expression of the technological capacity, and then they get filtered down to general use, Formula One racing starts to create the highest output for cars. You see sport and high technology filters down. You want to look and say, what are the movement patterns required? What are the systems required? Because when you look at the Maasai tribe, for example, there's this tribe in Africa that has been of, of importance late where you see these kids, 15, 20 years old, just bouncing 30 inches off the ground. And their hands are by their side. They're literally bouncing 25, 30 inches in their barefoot. And they're not even been in their knees. You look at these top runners that are running and they're just they're hitting the ground, they're running 100 meters in under 10 seconds. It's, it's mind-blowing. And you realize that's not happening from this like attract muscle thing. I, like Bodybuilders don't look like really good athletes in large part because they're, not tra they're training muscle and bone. And now if I think about how do I organize this, so this will, we can pause and come back to like actual tangible things. I'll talk about how this works. But 
the greatest thing you could understand is that the system that enables you to either feel stuck and bound and contracted in like a spiderweb cocoon that's pulling you in and contracting and locking down, which is really what happens like in Parkinson, for example, or even in a rheumatoid arthritis, when you stop moving, you feel my calves get stiff, my muscles get stiff, everything feels just stiffer and more dehydrated. And it's like you're slowly straight, look at Benjamin Button kind of thing. It's the opposite of that. But you know, elderly people, they become dehydrated and stiff and they shrink, they lose size. Their physical form that is inter, that is informed by the fascial endoskeleton, meaning under your skin, you have a whole set of fascia that wraps around everything. That is either getting stretched and opened and lengthened and feels so good to do things that just pull you apart like hanging, or it's not, and you're contracting, you're slowly being pulled in by gravity and everything contracting and squeezing you down to a core. That's the thing, because once you understand that, it puts a whole different importance on movement, and it changes your entire perspective on the fact that like pain just means that gears are grinding. My, my brakes are now rotating, and things are being broken down. And all I'm saying, okay, well, maybe there's a whole set of movements we want to explore that open you up, and that is accessible to everybody. And it's also the exact same thing that will lead you to better performance and an athletic capacity. But it only happens when you think about what could I pot when I open up and enlighten myself, as opposed to thinking, how do I just maintain and hold a position? Those two mindsets will take you to dramatically different places. So good, so good, and and this also explains why in your materials and in your online content, why you know, you aren't compartmentalized into one area with the connectivity mm-hmm. of the fascia and the illustration you gave of, of grabbing hold and squeezing a t-shirt and having it pull all through was, was this fabulous illustration. And so because the body's all connected, you're not just working on one area, not mm-hmm. down. you're addressing everything. And I was so surprised to see in your materials where we're working on shoulders in one of your course materials that we're actually also dealing with our hands and we're, we're mm-hmm. breathing and we're doing all these things. I'm like, okay, this is very different because it's very, it feels very 360 degree approach for a problem that is a 360 degree issue mm-hmm. rather than just as like isolating that area, like at a physical yeah. therapist. So I love it. I love it. So let's now explore some of those uh, specifics. And mm-hmm. I also don't want to let you off the hook with talking about how do we instill, maybe let's start with this. How do we instill, first of all, that mindset of athleticism? And I know it's a word that's not used much in our community. Not many people would say, I'm athletic or I'm mm-hmm. an athlete with rheumatoid. There are some. There are some famous surfers. There are some famous tennis players. There are some. But how can we all tap into that? Is it affirmations? Mm-hmm. Is it visualizations? Is it conversations we have i mean what can we do to get that mindset so i will i'll start with that one first because this is this is why before i consider because the conversation affirmations and visualization and maybe this is bioneurosis but if i don't understand the context nothing else has meaning in a sense if i can't paint the big picture for what is it that i am aspiring towards in a sense then i don't know what to aim for and so in, in, in capacity, so I, I think there's this idea of, I've been thinking about a lot, the idea of like meditation and prayer. So like even though they've been ascribed to a more religious context, the words themselves, words are just words, we ascribe to the meaning. But when you think of meditation, it's to listen, to pause, to pay attention, to think. And so, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's just I turn and close my eyes. It's just to observe. If I sit here and just pay attention, meaning I'm just absorbing feedback and listening to my body, I'm in a sense meditating. I wake up and I 
you know, just to sit on your bed and just think, okay, you know, do a little assessment. I just move my shoulders. Okay, that feels good. My fingers feel stiff. It's just, I'm meditating. Is it? I'm just, I'm mediating and sitting and being in a moment. I'm kind of pausing. Then the prayer, this prayer is really practice. It is just to show up and do it. So, for example, I just use the example of Kobe Bryant. The reason he was such a phenomenal basketball player is because he prayed every day about it. It is what you go and do. It's not a mindset of like, I'm going to just go hope. It's like, let me go and transmute this into actual action. I show up and do that stuff. So, in a sense, though, if I can't, and this is the thing is, it's my really most valuable thing is to empower people to understand that that process of meditation and prayer happens within yourself. Meaning my body is a, it's a, it's, it's the most beautiful thing that has been honed over millions of years of slight little improvements, slight little adjustments. It can tell you like the amount of things that we just stop being able to do, but like the humidity, temperature, space, feeling, energy, just being able to like, ah, I get a good feeling about that person or not. Like the, the idea that your gut, the microbiome, and who knows if it's even our body versus just the bacteria that live in our micro or our acid mantle and all this stuff. I don't know. But the point is that, like, just to say that, it, it, but you don't do that if you don't at the very least say like, I matter and I have capacity, I'm important. And just to say self-love in a sense. So this is where you go like, oh, you do have self-esteem and everyone has value and worth. It's like, well, what's the point of that? Well, the point is that you have to listen to yourself. Because if you listen to yourself and say, and you could just say from a very basic human dignity thing, oh, I'm a human and I exist. Well, the hard part is we do a utilitarian thing because if you get a diagnosis and now you're not as useful as the person who's healthy, quote unquote. Well, guess what? You're not as useful. You're not as worthwhile as a human. And that's a whole different level of like, especially for someone that's used to being able to perform, to move, just be a worker, a provider. And all of a sudden, you've been damned by diagnosis. If your version of worth is a utilitarian version where it's like, I was a beautiful car and now I've got this massive scratch or I'm missing an engine, like I'm no longer a car. For example, a car that doesn't run, let's say a car that doesn't have tires, is it a car in a sense? And so we understand that in terms of like material objects, but then when it comes to people, there's a whole different level of like, how do we understand this? And so in a sense, it's, it's, this is part of the modern expression of like understanding a wider array for what it is to be a human. It's more than just our physical capacity, what we can or can't do, because obviously that's limited. But we look and say, at some level, if we understand beauty and the intricacy of what something is able to do, for example, if we only ascribe to the high, one hierarchy of athleticism and say, well, the most worthy human is the one who wins the decathlon and the Olympics, for example. They can run, they can jump, they can do all this stuff. Or the most worthy human is the, the one that can, you know, is the best athlete, the Michael Jordan, so to speak. Well, then guess what? Everybody else is less worthy. And so that's when people they go, they do, they buy into that because their whole identity is like being an athlete and they can't let go of it when it's there and get injured. So that's another side. But then you look and say, well, the person that is able to fill their own purpose. And so this is where the change isn't about visualization and affirmation. It's about gratitude. So simply understanding that when you look at your pain as a sensation, and what do we call the, the let's say we have a tool, for example, like an antenna. An antenna that gets more, is able to open up and receive more feedback is more valuable than an antenna that doesn't. For example, if I can only, like, for example, an eyesight, we can see a certain amount of like visual light spectrum. But guess what? We can't see what insects do. We can't see all this stuff. So they have a more sensitive feedback system. Now, that also, if they're not aware of that, can feel overwhelmed. And so pain, in a sense, you could look at someone who's, uh, and this is, um, again, this is a my hypothetical projection. So I can't say that this is like, you know, I, I think a belief is very important. So if you choose to believe something, but this to me would be the value of my own experience with, you know, joints that just didn't hold up as much. There's a lot of people that did a lot more than me and had a lot less pain than me. And it's like, I got a shoulder dislocation. So like, what I've had to learn 11 shoulder dislocations later is I better learn how the thing works really well. And so in a sense, 
the pain is an invitation to learn your body. And so it's not that you have, let's say, a liability. It's that you're going to be, it's an invitation and maybe it's a calling, whatever you want to say, that tells you, you will learn how to use your body in a way just because you, by nature, having lower threshold for port movement. I can't just run anyway. I can't just jump any ever any old way. I can't just throw any old way. I can't just do things mindlessly. I have to be present and patient. And there's an idea that people that go and practice that we think are like monks who are very present, very very integrated in their body. It's like we honor those people because they they've practiced and done this stuff, you know. But in the same way, pain is the first teacher. It does inform us. And so, someone who can understand pain as a gift that just allows me when I'm doing something that's not right for my body. People with RA that they're very clear, you get a sign near the canary in the coal mine for, hey, it's not that I can't do this thing. It's just that you you shouldn't be doing this thing either. It's just not, you haven't figured it out yet. So I'm getting the warning signal 10, 20 years earlier than you, but it's not that I am incapable of doing the thing. I have to be more integrated and mindful of my movement. The harder it is though, because like, you know, in, in some senses, the longer you wait before you really perceive in that sense, you do get degradation in the body. So this is, these are the idea of consequences. So it's not just like, oh, I'm, if I've had RA for 30 years, 40 years, and I've had degradation in my joints, there's going to be a different set of possibilities. But if you start to understand that pain isn't a damning thing, it's just a really good feedback of, uh, I, I'll take this from a different example. Let's say in a relationship and someone who's emotionally sensitive, well, they're going to be more conscientious. If I said something that was mean, I'm really sorry. I, that was that was insensitive. I didn't mean to hurt that. And even if he was always thought that big of a deal, like, we appreciate when someone else acknowledges that. We're not just getting blustered over it. And the person who's kind of oblivious, who's low on a conscientious scale, is just going to like steamroll everybody else. Well, it's your, not your, your feelings are not my responsibility to do whatever. It's like, yes, but what you said, like, I, those are the people that we tend to like to be around because they're conscientious. And now if you thought of your relationship with yourself in that same way, the pain you feel physically is saying, hey, like, you know, that, that didn't feel like nice. And so maybe there's something to rethink about this movement pattern. So all it is to say is if you start to look at pain as a feedback on when something isn't true for you, meaning it does not honor the system and the thing that you've been blessed with, which is this amazing, beautiful body. And by looking at that thing as an amazing, beautiful thing, you then aspire towards the beauty, which is you. And that gives you a way to honor yourself. So it goes back to, it's not just about your utility. It's it's about the fact that you have this beautiful, finely crafted thing. And instead of thinking, I've got a diagnosis, I'm broken, I'm bad, I'm flawed, I'm flawed and I'm worthless, you say, I'm here for, like, there's a reason that I exist in the way, in the frame. And potentially there's things with the food, with the things that are, you know, inflammatory to me. So let me honor that and look at that. But beyond that, what if I thought about the things that, like, there's something for me to explore that most people will never get to explore because they're just kind of oblivious in a sense. There's a whole level of curiosity and gratitude there that's more than just wishful thinking because it does position a place to be curious. And when you're curious, you explore. And when you explore without comparison and limitations on someone else saying, oh, well, you've got this, so you can't do this, this, and this, you see something no one else has thought about. But for example, and I, this might be a mistelling of the story, but to my understanding, the wheel, and it's simply like, you know, the Greeks had the wheel, like the, the, for a long, long time, the wheel existed, like uh, chariots and, and different places. So like different civilizations had the wheel. And it's maybe a mis, mistelling of this, but I'm fairly certain the Native Americans had a pottery wheel that spun this way, but they never thought to turn it sideways and just to end up as a, a roll, like get a wagon. And so the point is, we don't know when we're looking at something. You ever like see those pictures that's got like two different meanings? And it's like, once you see it, you see it, you can't unsee it. But so often with our bodies, we're looking at the both the question and the answer. We just only see the question. We don't under, you know, we only see the out, maybe we only see the answer. But like, it creates this judgment and negativity that then limits how we can even possibly comprehend this. And so 
that creates the thing of, I can't even think about an athlete because I'm not expanding with curiosity of what that means. And so this goes back to the point of, once you determine and define athleticism as the ability to have competency within, it is to move on a spectrum that is to honor the frame and move in a direction that is towards better competency as a physical being, meaning to go from sitting to walking, to walking to running, or walking to jumping, jumping to running. And even in the slightest small things and for small amounts, just any any modicum of movement forward into that, that capacity is moving on the spectrum of athleticism. It's a scale. It's not a you're not a binary yes or no. A yes or no is a scary place because you get injured, you're no longer an athlete. That's a whole identity crisis. But if you thought about it as a motivation and say, no, I can become more athletic or I can become less athletic based off of my capacity to honor that system. Now, that's important because that mindset, along with the visual, the gratitude to say, oh, my body's just going to be really attuned to what the, uh, I can only move like a really good athlete. And instead of thinking, I just need to go up and do some exercise and go to the gym and do the thing. It's like, no, I need to study what the best surfers look like, the best skateboarders, what the best uh, weightlifters. And I need to mimic and hold myself to the highest standard. And by holding yourself to the highest standard, you show up with the most meaningful form of meditation and practice. And then you, you express your highest form in spite of, or actually not in spite of, because of, not in spite of this diagnosis, so to speak. And so there's a lot of psychology there. Well, that's why I start with this big picture of the body is not simply muscle and bone stacked on top of one another. As you've been told for most of the societies, it is really the system that if you start to honor the fact that there's these long lines, and this is probably the next thing we talk about, that this is the tangible, what can they do today to start to feel better and feel the system? That's where you start to understand, actually, just like a spider web, when I start to open up and release my clench at the bottom of my shirt, the whole shirt starts to relax. What can I do to start to restore different areas of my body? And then the entire thing, it's, it's, not, it's not lost to me, the idea of being enlightened, enlightened. It's like to let go of the friction which seeks to hold you down enlightens you because you are lighted, you are lighter. And these limiting beliefs, this gravity, this, this thing that is like holding them in space, these contractions, like muscles contract, gravity presses down. Like these, these things confine and shape us. And so to enlighten is to let go, to be unencumbered. So like these are, these are so valuable, there's so much in the etymology of these words that then can literally inform us how to use this thing that is our body. Mm, so good. Okay. So if I'm now to sort of try, and and I won't do this justice, to try and put that in the simplest possible way for us to, to, to think through. So I guess we're all athletic. We have, as you said, the gift of this perfect, beautiful body based on such a huge amount of evolutionary time mm-hmm. that we are already gifted with something absolutely beautiful and unique. And that being able to do any form of physical activity is a step in the uh, into a direction of ultimately a scale of either the, at, the, at the sort of beginner end and the professional athlete end. Yeah. And to be able to have that beautiful body all already should be enough for us to apply deep gratitude. And the process of deep gratitude is the, is the uh, sort of the connection that we need to make to then be able to explore further degrees of athleticism of which we already are part of so that we're not distinct from our athletes. Mm-hmm. We are just in a in a part of the spectrum that isn't as much seen on TV, for example. Yeah. And then we can proceed to explore with gratitude that we've already been given this vehicle of expression, our human body that's beautiful, 
and just move along using some guidance like you provide mm-hmm. and, and, and other experts so that we can explore that a little further with systems Perfect. that apply to all human all human beings. Amazing. Two, uh, just one, one quote that I think will summarize that perfectly is, swimming is the thing you start doing when you stop judging yourself for having bad technique. Swimming is the thing you start doing when you stop judging yourself for having bad technique. Meaning mm-hmm. you're in the water moving and you're not drowning, you're swimming. And yet, how many people think that they can't swim because they're like, well, I don't have, I don't know how to do it. No one taught me and I'm bad. I'm afraid. You can be afraid. You can look sloppy. It can be bad. You may have no idea what you're doing. If you're not drowning, guess what? You're swimming. And the second I go, oh, I can swim. If you just fence it, like if the barrier that stops you from even trying is the judgment, you'll never do it. But if you go, I'm in there, I'm kind of treading water. Oh, I'm swimming. This is cool. And so like, maybe I'll try and you said, naturally as humans, we have this interesting capacity to take a little step further. Oh. Maybe I could go from here to here. Maybe go from here to here. And so you kind of like, eventually you could do a lap. And like, that's amazing. Like that right there is, is the whole thing in, in the side. And the other qualifier to that, and I think this is really important because as with every progression, I think a long arc of history, Ben's liberal. And I think there's a huge progression to this more body awareness, body acceptance, which I think is valuable. But it's always important to understand that there is personal responsibility in this. For example, if you find, there are some foods and some things, and this is the hard part. There's two parts of this. One of which, the only role, I'd say, I don't say all only, but I'd say the primary role of a government should be to provide the simplest way for humans to manifest in a civilization to manifest healthy, safety existence. The water should be clean, the air should be fresh, the water should be fresh, the air should be clean, the food should be real, and the money should be consistent in a sense. Like when you start to see governments that take advantage of that, and let's just, you know, maybe not so much in other countries, but I know in America, there's definitely examples of like advocating responsibility. The water is just dirty. It's like, that's not acceptable in a sense because for the people, like there should be in the same way with your kids. You would want your kids to know that like the tap water is you, you whatever we drink out of the fridge is at least safe. Like you would want to know that there is a bare minimum because when they're not worried about their constant existential safety, they're able to explore. So in a sense, that government does that. So that's the hard part because when people are eating what they're told to eat, they're drinking the water they're told to drink, and there's toxins or things in it, like that's not their fault. Like that is, that is a travesty. That is a travesty and a failure of leadership in the sense when you look and say, cause you'll find out that like, Oh, you know, using these chemicals in America, there's all kinds of like red 40 and things like that, that are just still in food that are very legal in other countries. Yet, which is there. So that's a tragedy and a failure in leadership, but that still has real ramification. The other side of that though, is let's say, and we, we know like some foods are going to be more inflammatory for the body. And that definitely pays a role in the progression of rheumatoid arthritis. If you find out that, hey, you didn't know beforehand, now you do, it's not your fault what happened. But at this point, moving now, you've had the naivety ripped off, there is a responsibility. And let's just say you do say, I know I shouldn't eat this, but you know, whatever. And then 10 years, 20 years later, you decide to take it seriously. The hardest part of this is that there are real consequences in a sense. So we, you want to be able to go and say, the body positive, except everything you said is beautiful. Also realize that the time, like, the, the harshness of life is we, youth is wasted on the young. We learn things. We can't go back and undo them. And so as soon as you start to get this painful feedback from your body, the longer you ignore that painful feedback, the more you are digging yourself a hole. And so within that, there is still, you could, the best time to start was yesterday. The next best time to start is right now. And so it is still upward movement. And so everything you said, you're still on this path. But the longer you go and you emotionally, first off, you fight it with like, every tool, every pill, everything like that. And then you start to fight it with emotions. You're just angry, resentful. And you start to realize this beautiful quote from Anthony DeMello is beautiful thinker, but it's basically this, 
his yard has this man's yard has dandelions all over the place. It's just horrible. It's like, you know, he's tried all the different assets within his means to go do it. So he writes a letter to the Department of Agriculture and says, I've got all these dandelions. This is what I've done. And eventually the, the reply comes back, takes some time. They go, well, we suggest you learn to love them. And so at first, you know, he, he hated it. And he was, he tried everything with his means to go and, you know, use chemicals, you spray, you pick them up to the stuff and he couldn't get it away. Then he just got angry and mad. And he's like, well, you know, resentful and negative energy and focus and just wishing it all away. And finally, he just started to have a conversation. And so it was like, the point is the dandelions were, if you personify them, were uncertain because it's like, this is somebody who's tried to kill us many times. And so eventually after the conversation, they start to open up and it goes from like, you know, bitterness, bitterness to acceptance, to friendliness, congeniality, to eventually loving. And so the, the tagline in the story is that, you know, my yard was, at the end of the day, there's no consequences because my yard was ruined, but my garden was beautiful. In a sense, it's like, it's, and it's not so much just a simple, like change of perception, but it's like the initial thing he had viewed for himself based off some arbitrary model of desire, externally focused, meaning I'm going to have this beautiful yard that's perfect and lines are in the grass is even and the lines are perfect. And, you know, go like, well, it's not like lawn anymore, but it's a garden because there's all these pretty dandelions and flowers and stuff. And again, I know that it's, it's hard to walk that line of like not being just wishful thinking and semantics because it is a real painful thing and it is a real situation. But so much of this is like, look at what you have and understand that there is ample movement in any direction. But the quicker you start to bring yourself emotionally, physically, mentally, spiritually, ideologically around to looking at things for what they are, which is in my version, like love is to see things clearly. The quicker you start to love yourself, meaning just to be, this is what we got. This is this is where we're at. Like, let's start here and honor the fact that there is something to be learned from here. Then you start moving on. It's just don't forget that there are consequences for ignoring what your body's telling you. So, yeah, totally. Yeah, you know, like uh, in in descriptive terms, you know, it's a progressive and debilitating and uh, you know ongoing disease that uh, mm-hmm. we we have to you know we have to we have to take massive action basically mm-hmm. against ongoing progression and uh and as you said yesterday was the best place to start but if not right now so uh i don't you know sometimes in these conversations i'll have with others i feel like uh you know there is some sort of like a preamble if you like before we get to the good stuff in adverted commas i actually feel that the conversation we've had so so far is the good stuff because your yeah. content is so freely available online. You've got so much stuff on Instagram, the barefoot sprinter. It's just so helpful with short tips. In fact, it's a great illustration for ways that I'd like to improve my channel where you've got really useful stuff in really like entertaining and valuable clips that can be uh, implemented easily for folks who are interested in this stuff. And it's great. But what we don't get on Instagram, what we don't get through other journals is the content that you've shared with us about the spirituality, the mm. deep, the deepness behind this, the mindset, the philosophy, the concepts around whole body movement, and that non-sort of tactical but more philosophical stuff is just so, so valuable and goes much deeper than just a quick tip around a joint, mm-hmm. right? Of which we know that you have endless supply. Um, but uh, but yeah, I just wanted to to throw value back on all that we've talked mm-hmm. about. Um, and uh, and now we let, let's just let's now go on to maybe some. Um, I can't guess this these uh, these uh, tangible aspects, tangible things. But we don't need to go into every single joint. I mean, let's just talk. Some tangible tips for us in terms of uh, whole body improvement mm-hmm. philosophy, please. Absolutely. So uh, to give credence to what you're saying, 
the, the entire structure set up in a way that like, I understand that if I just start talking about this stuff, there's a lot of preconceived notions about like spirituality, what it means and like etymology of words and stuff. We, we'd never give it a fresh look. And so the, the, the goal is to say that, you know, I've got a foot program and hip program and a shoulder program, relatively speaking, because that's how people have been trained. The, the, the social media, the first instinct someone has is very simple words, very small, very direct, very meaningful, very actual. Oh, I could do that to empower someone just to, if I can give from like never having known you to you watch something, you raise your arm then it's a win. It's a step in the right direction. And now then it's a dollar to start the trial. Okay, I'll try that. Oh, this actually worked. I'll do the program. And then the program slowly, you'll see the language is like, we're talking about this stuff, but slowly I start to seed in ideas around, you know, diagnoses and beliefs and like how your body and sort of, it's like, it's a little seeding through those first three programs to kind of reorient your body. Then a lot of the spiritual stuff has really come with the unbreak of like that more combined, like let's start to work on some of these interior things. So after a span of six months, with you know four books and understanding this stuff it's like you've gone on a journey because you can't speak to children in a way that adults do in a sense and it's not to belittle people but i'm saying literally you don't speak to children in the same way you would speak to a, a fully grown you know 50 year old adult that's had a lot of experience so you you talk to people and you go through this and you start to every single step is a little bit more than what to do but you empower them educate them and there's a journey you go across and so if the body, the body is nothing more than a tool for our ultimate development and self-understanding. And I think that's the most important part of the whole uh, criteria is like to start to look at that. So, you know, but to give people these very simple things to start looking at, what I want you to start to visualize is most, if there's low hanging fruit for anything is to take your shoes off. So now what I want you to visualize is you have a shirt and you hold, like we did the analogy earlier, you grab the bottom of your shirt and the fist and you pull down. Now, because you're condensing a lot of fabric and you're pulling, you're creating a tension everywhere else. So there's really three main, so I'll, I'll say it this way. There's six articulating points of the body. You got your right foot, your left foot, your right hand, your left hand. You got your pelvic floor, meaning literally your, your ability to contract the sphincters at your anus and at your uterus and for women at the vaginal, vagina, I'll work on that one. Obviously, another woman's health expert. And you got your jaw. So like those are the six areas that we can start to think about like, oh, I have capacity to do this. And so just like the end of a chain, if I'm pulling on something, I want to create tension. And so these areas, the hands, the feet, the jaw, the pelvic floor are what we can do to create tension because like everything else is in the middle. It has a beginning and end, whereas the fingers, like I grab and I latch on. So there's open and closed movements, meaning my bicep, the, the section between my shoulder and my elbow, they can only, there's only so much movement available because the bone can only move so much. My fingers can grab. And the more things they can grab, different positions, different leverages they can get. And every time I grab in a different pronation, meaning a different ankle or, ang or wrist position, or every time I use my feet and I'm on my toes or I engage with things or I grab with my jaw, those create tension throughout the rest of the body. So from those points, you want to think, how can I start to create motion and movement there and restore circulation to the tissue that then opens up? Because Ultimately, even though the quick sell is to say, do this exercise, do the exercise, this exercise, my underlying belief is that health and vitality should be democratized and decentralized. And it's not, you shouldn't have to go through some mediating authority to have access to your body. It's like, and the bare, like this idea of like walking, we talk about like shoveling uh, snow off the driveway or just walking on a path. Those things happen naturally. And now there will be, especially when it comes to the feet, if you've not moved your feet or your toes in decades, there's going to be a little bit of a learning period where you have to say, okay, actually, how do I start to, like, just like learning chopsticks is a skill involved, which would be frustrating and it'll take time at first. But as soon as you get over the hump of this base level understanding, the very activities of your daily life will keep you healthy. And so 
my thought is you have to look at what blocks the feedback that prevents that from happening. Meaning, if I'm so my toes and feet should be naturally. If, for example, we don't get um, you know ingrown toenails on our fingers, right? We don't get ingrown fingernails. You don't get um, metatarsalagia, which is like pain in the bottom of the the, the like. So pain in between. Basically, metatarsalagia neuromas are when there's compression on the side of the foot and it squeezes in between. There's nerve compression inside that. We don't get those. We don't get turf toe at our thumb. There's obviously some of these are going to be different when you look at the arthritis of the thumb and some of those. And there's a whole lot that goes in the grip and the strength of that position. So as you're seeing with the, the upper body program, the mudras, the hand positions you go through, it's very weird, but you think, oh, wow, why can't I actually move these fingers? And so when we start to look at that, the inability to move fingers individually, independently, creates an, a, a stiffness at the wrist that then puts a pressure on the nerves going in and creates a, a loss of movement at the thenar and the hypothenar, the thenar and the hypothenar eminence. So those are basically the fancy word for the palm of the thumb, the palm of the pinky. But the same thing with the toes, if you haven't moved those, what happens is if you can move your toes and you walk barefoot, or at least you have some access, they naturally get, they get circulated, they get movement, they get pressure, they get stimulus. But when you have something that blocks the feedback, we then have a problem. And so that doesn't mean shoes are bad. Shoes are an amazing technology that protects your feet, keeps them warm, and doesn't let them, you know, it keeps them uh, safe, so to speak. The problem is that the ability to continue to take a pill and numb, the software is more comfortable, is better. And so you get something where there's one last, which is one foot shape that is used to make all shoes, regardless of the shape of the shoe. And regardless of the fact that just like your hand can make many different shapes, your foot is able to make many different shapes as well. Uh, one example that people don't think about is the quintessential signal for I'm doing good is a thumbs up. It means I have access to flex and extend my four digits and my thumb is working opposed of those, meaning my thumb can move, my fingers can flex and my thumb can extend, meaning I have access to my hand. And if I have access to my hands on both sides, I'm okay. I'm doing good. Like we said, we don't think about these positions. Like what are they signaling? Why does that okay some signal that? Well, that's what's going on. Now, you should be able to do that for your toes as well. You should be able to flex your four toes and extend your big toe. It's very painful and very difficult for a lot of people to do. Now, if I am wearing shoes that are either thick or they're supportive shoes, they're orthotics or have an ankle brace, or I've got some type of like, you know, something that holds the toes in place or I've had surgeries, that prevents the actual feedback from just as I walk through the day and move. And I would have to, your balance gets better as you're able to move your toes, your health of the tissue in between your, your bones and the actual uh, muscles and tissue in there. That improves. These things happen naturally. So, the, and one last point of that is the calves function as the second pump of the heart, meaning if I walk, people talk about how walking is so good for getting blood flow. Well, it's, it's actually, if you look at it, if you stood beside your desk and didn't even walk, but just did calf raises, like 20, 30, 50, 100 calf raises and kind of bounce up and down, that's more effective than a 20-minute walk because you're actually pumping blood back up. So the way the blood system works is that your heart pumps blood out through your arteries, which have a vascular constrictive aspect that continues to reverberate that pump and pushes blood through all the way to the arterioles, to the capillaries, which exchanges down at the, wherever the blood, the oxygen is going to go, picks up carbon dioxide. Veins don't have that same constrictive timber, constrictive feedback. So they only have venules, or the venules and veins, they have their cusp. So basically, they, they block backflow of the blood. Blood can squeeze through, but then they get kind of these cups that close off and prevent backflow. But you can see that if I have gravity working and put, working with the heart to pump blood all the way down to my feet, I get this edema, this swelling. And if my toes don't move, Think about like, so it's not ironic that most diabetics lose access to their toes and they you know, to foot amputation, toe amputation. It actually has a lot less to do with the disease of diabetes 
and much more to do with the underlying loss of movement and healthy. Because in general, this type one diabetics are a whole different thing. Type two diabetics, where they're not moving, they don't have the circulation, where they're not getting motion to the toes. And just like frostbite, if I can move and get circulation to this and show I have to have it, I don't lose access to my fingers. And so the toes are the same thing. If I can't even move my toes, let alone I'm wearing socks that squeeze them and shoes that break them down and orthotics that prevent these tiny little motions that would happen, guess what? I've lost the ability to have any type of circulation to that. And that creates a situation where instead of being able to go for a walk and feel the ground and move and get all kinds of circulation to the 28 bones, 33 joints, and hundreds of muscles, ligaments, and tendons in my foot, ankle, lower leg, well, guess what? I had that. And so then that creates a stiffness. And so guess what? When my feet get stiff, my plantar fascia locks down. The tissue that runs from your big toe to your heel, that plantar fascia tissue, isn't, it doesn't stop there. It literally wraps the same line of tissue wraps around the heel and up into your Achilles tendon. And that forms a fascia that wraps around your calves. That forms a fascia that wraps around your hamstrings. That forms what wraps around your glutes. That forms what goes to your thoracolumbar fascia, which is your thorax and your lumbar meaning you're that low back spot where people have all kinds of pain because their disc compressed down L5S1 to con- contract that basically you're surrounded. There's a whole sheath of fascia in that low back that create everything stuck. That wraps around your lats, which is your upper back that goes to your shoulder blades, your shoulders, and goes down to your, up your neck, around your forehead, into your eyebrows and down the back of your arms. So simply by saying, when I don't move my toes, I basically am grabbing the bottom of my shirt and pulling down as hard as I can. And then my calves get stiff. My Achilles gets tender. I get Achilles tendonitis. I stop running. When I stop running, I stop extending my hips. I stop When I stop jumping, I stop extending my hips. And I'm sitting down all day, which is my hips are in 90 degree uh, fashion. My knees are bent. Well, guess what? My hamstrings never get opened up all the way. Well, guess what? That then takes away from the glute engagement. My glutes get stiff. And so then that pulls on this thoracolumbar fascia, this fascia, this tissue on my low back. And that compresses the spine. And then not only do you have weight and the size of the disc that get bigger into this L5S1, but I also got this, remember this, uh, like think about this, like this chicken, this uh, sausage casing that's wrapping around as that gets stiffer, that's pulling and it's more and more compression. My pelvic floor doesn't get any motion because we don't talk about sexual health at all other than pregnancy for women for a very brief moment. Men never talk about it at all, talking about Kegels, reverse Kegels and moving and engaging that. That tissue gets no movement, so that's stiff and broken. So that pulls everything. So my entire pelvic floor, my sexual organs, my, uh, uh, let's say my bowel movements, all that is locked down because it doesn't get any motion. And then it's all concentrated on this low back where all the pressure is going. And no wonder a disc goes because everything around us got dehydrated stiff. And so then that goes up the chain. So my back gets stiff and I can no longer move the shoulders. So instead of rotating the shoulder because the scapula would naturally flow with it, shoulder gets stiff. Frozen shoulder, impingement, bicep tendonitis all happen. Then you should look at like, well, I can't actually use my bicep, my triceps, because my shoulders won't rotate. Biceps get stiff and tight. It pulls in the elbow. I get tennis or golf elbow. That pulls in the hands. All of a sudden, my thumbs are stuck and locked. And now my thumb is being pulled back into the joint. Guess what? Rheumatoid arthritis. Now my thumb is being messed up because my feet won't move. When my fingers don't move and extend, I can't extend them and open up the wrist. That takes the outside of the elbow, the elbow right here. So the outside of the wrist affects the uh, golf or tennis elbow. Because like I'm not able to extend the wrist anymore. There's up to the shoulder, the neck, the traffic is so locked and tight. That pulls down on the nape and causes a lot of the male pattern and baldness because literally you're pulling down the skin and killing the hair follicles on top of your head. Tension headaches. I no longer move. My jaw gets weak and it starts to pull on one side or the other. They get EMJ. You get all kinds of stuff. You lose circulation to your bones and that causes malocclusion in your teeth. I start grinding my teeth at night. I can't sleep well. Then I'm not breathing through my nose. And now I'm not even moving the ribs and diaphragm. So it gets harder. So instead of being able to breathe through the nose, you can dig deep, full breaths and pull the diaphragm. I'm doing this shallow, apical breathing. 
the whole thing is going there. And I'm not saying it's just from the feet, but any one of these inroads, any single one of these inroads, the feet, the hands, pelvic floor, the mouth can cause that. And that thing goes to the rest of the body. So if you want to do this, it is so, so simple. It's just understanding what is the pain I'm feeling? Where is the tissue that is affected by that? How do I create a very simple set of movements that open things up? And it could be as simple as moving and walking through your toes, getting your hands to extend and go through a full range of motion, grabbing, hanging to open up your shoulders, using your jaw to chew real food, open and closing your mouth, doing some very simple neck movement, and then breathing in a way that your rib cage, your diaphragm, and your pelvic floor start to expand and contract. It's just basically thinking, when I move, I am like a car engine. Every time I move in a tissue, I get oil going to that. And when I do that, it's healthy. When I water the plant, it stays healthy and grows. If I don't do it and I feel stiffness, tingling, numbness, pinching, tearing, shearing, uh, like anything along those lines, just kind of anything that feels a painful situation, which is any of those things that contract and bring, oh, that's interesting. I feel that. That's a problem. So that's where you pay attention to it. Does that make sense? There's a lot there, but like it's, it's, it's impossible to say one without looking at everything. Yeah. 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 It's awesome. <laughs> I found my little, uh, I found my little uh, 90 second clip for, uh, for, for sharing there. You on an absolute rant of how it's all connected. Uh, it was fabulous. It was entertaining and interesting and uplifting all at the same time. Um, I know that you said it doesn't all begin with the feet and you've got those other uh, points with the hands, uh, also pelvic floor, the, the mouth and so on. Now it all connects in together. But uh, why don't we just because it's, as we said right at the start, it's hard to find out like where would be like the one point to to narrow down on, but why don't we just do feed a little bit more justice here? And be- before we before we wrap this up, yeah. um, let, let's just stay on the feed here because uh, uh, some objections may come forward that I get mm. when I recommend that same thing that you've just said with the feet. Get out, do some barefoot walking. Which, by the way, I say uh, I say start with just uh, start with just maybe sixty seconds if you've not walked uh, barefoot for a long time on very soft grass. Mm-hmm. Because if there's inflammation in the metatarsals, which can happen with rheumatoid, then we're very reluctant to to walk on hard surfaces. So start on very soft grass mm-hmm. just for 60 seconds. My experience with doing this is not only does it get rid of inflammation, mm-hmm. but it also desensitizes the feet so that after a while you can actually walk not just on soft grass, but firmer surfaces. And now I can walk on tarmac, like roads and things barefoot, not entirely comfortably, but I, yeah. I, I could walk, you know, I can walk a couple of hundred meters as if someone said, go on, show me that you can do it. Yeah, I can do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the desensitization and the reduction of inflammation are both crucial things that mm-hmm. I can't see that you can achieve any other way other than actually getting the shoes off. Mm-hmm. So just- there's two things. There's brilliant. And just one is to simplify everything I said. The two yes. lowest hanging fruits are things you said at the very beginning. Hanging, and that doesn't mean your feet have to leave the ground. Fine, it could be a tree. It's a band, something that pulls your arms. You could literally go into a gym uh, to do a, a lat pull down. So basically with the thing you grab and you pull down to your chest. Don't do it. Just put some weight that's like half of your body weight and just let your arms extend. And just something that pulls your rib cage off of your, your spine, basically that decompresses your spine, just hang and just rotate and breathe and rotate and breathe. That is the, like, eventually you work up a little more weight, a little more weight, and you can hang with your feet on the ground. And it, like hanging is so crucial. It literally remodels the shoulder joint. Another thing is the taking shoes off of walking. And so 
the benefit of doing it because there's all kinds of pads. Um, like people say, could I do it on the sand? It's like, of course you can do it on the sand. The hard part with the sand is that you can get into some like the sand that really starts to go. You'd want a little bit more of a firmer sand. And it's, you know, people go to the beach, there's lots of options. But if you get the really deep sand that like you step, you really get in, you can start to pull those toes in situations, which healthy feet can totally handle. But if you haven't done it before, mm. it's kind of like taking a rubber band that's kind of like a little bit dehydrated and dilapidated. It's like it's going to snap. And so in a sense, you're just easing into it. And so working on that. So, you know, sand is going to be good, but the, the benefit of doing something on an organic surface, that could be sand, uh, like you know, this are like wood. Um, well, I guess technically the living, but let's just say like grass, soil, and it touches the ground, you get the grounding effect too, which is basically your earth acts to uh, it absorb excess electrons. And there's a whole level of science behind this and it's way beyond my pay grade, but basically it's like a grounding source. And so that's a really valuable thing. It does help with the inflammation. But the idea of like standing, you don't even have to walk. If you can find a patch, if you can find a patch of 12 inches by 12 inches of dirt or ground, and even if walking, just kind of lift up on. So if you think about your foot and you lift your heel off the ground and just start to rotate left and right and just feel the toes start to rotate and pull. And you can put the top of your foot on the ground and just start to stretch out the top of your foot and start to do put the foot down, do some ankle circles. Like there's all kinds of stuff you can do. Very simple things where... You don't have to have a walking stimulus and a long path, but you can find a space and just start to feel. It's really important you're on a soft ground because there's there's stimulation. There are thousands of nerve endings that go on the bottom of your feet. And so those nerve endings allow you to reintegrate this very intellectual, very instinctive part of your body, which tells you how to balance, how to move, how to bifurcate sensation. Because if the only thing we're wearing socks and then we're walking on something that feels like a two-dimensional cloud and we're never getting the movement of the bones, our feet get locked up. And so if you look at that, basically in between the bones, so if you took a look at your hand, you spread your fingers apart, you'll notice that you have the ability to start to create, you can press the me, the, the metacarpals, which are the bones like your knuckles. You can press the outside and kind of pull them in. If you make a fist, those bones are spread apart. You can squeeze them in. There's some healthy play in those. And so when you lose that at the feet, what you end up getting is inflammation simply because you're actually creating tension and friction on the ner- the nerves and the tissue in between these bones. It nothing to do with the fact that the bones may be completely healthy. And to someone that's in an RA situation, it's like, I have worked with thousands, and this is not an exaggeration, thousands of people who have the same sensation. And there's no rheumatoid arthritis diagnosis. It's simply that their feet are not helping to smash together. So this, this goes to the other part, which is, in, and after talking and spending a lot of time with my dad on this stuff, it's like, just because you got diagnosed with something does not make you not a human. You know, he'll go, he'd say, well, you know, I can't sleep because of a Parkinson's. It's like, well, no, you also have caffeine, like at all hours of the day, you're out near artificial light, you don't get outside, you're stressed, you're managing all this stuff. Every other person in the world, if they did this, would have trouble sleeping too. And so, yes, there are differences and distinct aspects because of the situation, the syndrome, the diagnosis you find yourself in, but always helpful. it's always helpful to consider in what ways am I still a normal person? And I have thousands of people that go through the program for the feet that all have the same problem. And it's mostly because they're wearing shoes and their feet are trapped in. They don't know how to move them. So, you know, by being able to move, you don't even have to start with walking, just standing in something and just taking turns, kind of like shifting up on one calf, shifting up in the other calf and sort of move, feel the toes spreading, feel the ground. Like this is just the perspective on this. It's not that many centuries ago, maybe two, 300, where the idea of, probably before than that, but like the idea of inside and outside wasn't even a concept. Like you go, oh, you want to go inside? What do you mean inside? 
well, mm. like we're outside right now. Nature's like, wait, no, we're, we're just here. Like the idea of inside, like side is the Latin uh, suffix for to split inside, outside. The second we decided that nature was out there, but like there are people who live their entire life without ever wearing shoes. And they're still right now that live on this earth in another country, another place that have lived, will live their entire life without wearing shoes and it will never go inside. And, you know, in some senses, like there's a nice human sensibility of getting out in the weather and elements and stuff. And so like, if I'm living in the Caribbean, it's a little bit easier than, you know, somewhere else. But like, you know, the point is, remains that we have the capacity to do this stuff. And even just exposing yourself to a little bit of nature in some capacity has so many far reaching benefits that if you can compound variables, you go out in the morning for three minutes, two minutes, one minute, and just kind of feel the ground, just roll the ankles around. You know, put your hands over your head, big breath in, just move left to right. You're getting the sunlight from the morning. You're getting the vitamin D, just a little bit of exposure. You're kind of setting your circadian rhythm, getting in touch with the earth and moving your joints and your bones. That's how you stack variables. And the most powerful multivitamin you could do is to go out and spend two to three minutes out in sun, in on soil, barefoot, like there's, and just breathe and just, like there's. It does so much, and it's so amazing how valuable that can be for someone that's starved for that type of motion. So there's a lot of stuff there, a lot of really valuable stuff that once you get over the fear, because I'll say the other thing too, if you notice how you walk, so pay attention to the sensation, and it's not just the feet, but whatever else happens. So this is the idea of like what else is going on through the system of the body. If you notice what happens to your feet, to your body when you walk on like a harder surface, let's say you're walking in something like, oh, I can feel the ground, my shoulders tense up. I get, there's a lot of fear. It's like, I don't know where I'm standing. And so people walk around and their shoulders are tense, their elbows are tense, their, their uh, jaws tense, and they're very uncertain. And so by being able to expose yourself into small little modicum amounts of like, presentation to that fear, you start to feel your shoulders relax. You start to trust yourself more. So there's so much of this like emotional process of developing trust that you're okay and that you're not a fragile thing outside of nature. It's like, it is scary. It will feel uncomfortable. There will be sensation. But the exposure to it greatly outweighs it. And so if, you, if you're too afraid to go walk outside, find a little patch and just do some basic movement. And even if you need to start inside with a little bit of texture, totally fine. But the point is that the, the direction to your health is always in the direction of moving into manageable discomfort, little by step, step by step. That is the free will that humans experience is the ability to choose discomfort intentionally. Oh, that last bit was absolutely awesome walking into and embracing manageable discomfort and then mm-hmm. incrementally yes. incrementally being able to tolerate more. It totally therefore takes all the fear and power away from it because now we're engaged with it at a level that's tolerable, but we're incrementally uh, in- introducing more in our life without setting ourselves back. And that distinct or, or, or diminishes the fear that empowers us and, uh, and uh, leads us in the right direction for sure. So that's awesome. Why don't we leave it there? Graham, you're going to be one of our guests uh, next month uh, for our members inside Room Soil Solutions membership, Patterson Program membership. If you're a member in one of those platforms, uh, then Graham is going to be doing a live Q&A with us uh, coming up soon. We'll post the date for that inside the members area. Graham, you've got wonderful content on your The Barefoot Sprinter Instagram channel and over at your website, grahamtuttle.com, you've got your courses, which are very reasonably priced. So if you're looking to take this to another level uh, and you like what you see for free on Instagram, of which there is so much content, uh, then you can do uh, one of several of Graham's courses, which cover different aspects of the body in huge amount of detail. They're very comprehensive. 
Uh, I'm still not through the 30 days of detailed content around the shoulders, and uh, it's all being uh, collected in my uh, special folder there to go through in detail uh, in the future. But I've just been cherry picking information that I've found, implementing it. And the funny thing that happens is I'm like, well, that actually helps. And then I'll watch the next, well, that actually helps too. And then I'm like, well, that actually helps too. Much of it I've never seen before as well, Grant. Some mm -hmm. of this stuff I'm thinking, where does he pulling this from? Because it's very functional. It's very helpful and it's very original. And so I want to compliment you on your, your content that you've created as well. So with that, thank you, Graham. This has been a, a journey uh, uh, that's uh, different than I expected. I thought we might be spending a lot of time just going through functional things in the body, but we went to a much higher place and we talked about the philosophical approach. And, the, and I think it's very motivating for people and hopefully they adopt a lot of your strategy. So thank you very much. Uh, my pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to Rheumatoid Solutions. If you'd like to get more help to live an easier, healthier, and happier life, visit rheumatoidsolutions.com.